Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. busy week to talk about a lot of stuff in this opening segment of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com last week and this week uh not a whole lot of baseball news happened <laughs> hi everyone i'm tyler mon sam dykes in new york city hi sam hi tyler yeah I, it kind of makes me think like last week i was so happy that we had to move things around and actually by moving things around we got to talk about the francisco lindor trade but now part of me is looking at the baseball landscape and what's happened in the last week and the landscape of everything else uh and wishing like either the Lindor trade happened over the weekend or like happened after we recorded yeah so we could have like that big blockbuster to talk about maybe we could have led with Blake Snell or or all the the Padres moves instead last week but instead it all got packaged in right beforehand which was great gave us lots to talk about last week it was a packed show for sure uh and actually Cade Cavalli's name has come up in trade rumors once again and once again the Nats have said no, we don't want to give up him or Jackson Rutledge. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I encourage you to do so to hear about all the news we talked about and that Cade Cavalli interview. Um, But yeah, this week uh, I really felt, you know, that a lot of people have said the major league offseason is is kind of gone to a crawl. And and I really felt that this week, hopefully in the week ahead, we still have stuff to talk about. We'll get to that in a second, but uh, I Hopefully in the weeks ahead, we can really start picking up with moves and and all that stuff. Well, we uh, do have a new prospect on the show this week, a guy who was drafted by the same organization as our prospect from last week, uh, Kate Cavalli. Will Crow joins the show this week, newly in the Pittsburgh Pirates organization. We'll talk to him coming up in a little bit. Um, Otherwise... Got some stuff to get to, but before we do get to it, uh, you can get in touch with the podcast at any time, podcast at MILB.com. Give us your questions about what's coming up for 2021. Um, if you've got some, you know, hot stove things as the stove is, I don't know if the temperature it's reached has been hot yet, but, uh, you know, there's a stove and it seems like it's turned on. Um, we can talk about that stuff. We can talk about anything else as it relates to the coming baseball season uh, here in 2021. And wherever you found us, give us a rating and a review and a subscription if you would like. And uh, with that, we'll dive into this week's conversation on the show before the show. The 2021 season, we hope, fingers crossed, just, uh, I don't know, not even three months away, at least at the major league level. And we are back to one of the last things that I sort of remember discussing on the show before the world uh, went sideways last March. And that is 
the uh, prospect projections from Toolshed Sam's column, which uses the Fangraph Steamer 600 projections uh, to preview how prospects would fare over a full major league season in 2021, or at least the prediction of how they would fare uh, if they were to get a full season at the major league level. Sam has kicked this season off with the American League East and take us through it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I did want to get this started as Tyler mentioned, because all the news we're hearing is that um, MLB is telling teams to prepare for spring training to start on time. Um, so if that's going to happen, we might as well kick into season preview mode. As we said last week, we expect double a and the lower levels to maybe be delayed into may um, because spring training for minor leaguers is going to shift it to the back end, but this is a major league story involving prospects and potential rookies. Uh, Tyler mentioned Steamer 600. Steamer 600, I like a lot just because it doesn't try to project playing time. I think things can get a a little finicky when we do that. So especially when it comes to rookies. So what this does is the 600 is stands for 600 plate appearances. If you are a non-catcher position player, you are projected to get 600 plate appearances across the board. Uh, If you are a catcher, you're projected to get 450 plate appearances. If you are a starting pitcher, you are projected to get 200 innings. Relievers get 65 innings. Basically, it it assumes that everybody would play a full season. What would they do over that full season? It's kind of fun to play with, especially with rookies who the minor league numbers are baked into that system. Um, So if you're trying to jump from a class A advance or class A straight to the majors, it's going to show that you're going to be usually well below replacement level. Um, So you can dive into this story. It's now up on the site. Uh, went up on Wednesday. Uh, This first one touches on the AL East. We'll be going division by division. The one thing I want to touch on with you guys here in this segment real quick uh, is the same thing that I led the column with, which is Rays outfielder Randy Arozarena. Uh, The the last time we saw Randy Arozarena playing on a baseball field, he was a postseason performer for the ages. He set records for hits, home runs. I think he tied the extra base hit record as well. Obviously, part of that is a part of an expanded postseason last year. But still, Randy Arozarena was if he if the Rays had managed to win the World Series, I think that would have been one of the greatest postseason performances of all time, no matter the length. Uh, you know, he hit 10 home runs in his time. Um, you know, the, like the he slugged well over 600. Uh, it was really funny to watch him do that just because. Entering the season, he was part of a trade along with Jose Martinez for Matthew Libertor, who we've had on the show before. Um, kind of an afterthought of a deal. It wasn't, you know, m- nobody thought much about it. Uh, it just seemed like the Cardinals had a little bit of a log jam in outfield, which is funny to think about now. Uh, the Rays saw an opportunity, flipped a top 100 prospect for Arizona, who started the year as the number 21 prospect for the Rays, obviously proved to be a lot better than that. But I mentioned the postseason numbers. It's important to know those don't go into steamer projections. So you might have seen him, again, hit 377, had the the 10 homers over 20 games, and think this guy has to be an AL Rookie of the Year candidate. And he very well might be. That's not easy to do, uh, to hit over 300 and have a homer every other game uh, in the postseason. But when we look at his previous performance, when we look at his minor league stuff, his, his brief time in the majors with the Cardinals and the Rays, this is what Steamer projects for Randy Arizarena. They see him hitting 257 with a 330 on base percentage, 447 slugging, 24 homers, 20 stolen bases, 
108 WRC plus. That's where 100 is is average. So 108, just a little bit above average uh, for his hitting, and a two WAR over a full season. It's not bad. I think that two WAR is fourth highest projection among Rays position players. Um, but it's not exactly where we thought Arizona could be based off his playoff performance. So you might look at this and be skeptical of the projections. That's totally fine. The way I look at it is it kind of brings us back down to earth. If you think Randy Arizona is going to be a top 20 overall player next year, based on what he did in the postseason, I would remind you that 20 games is still a relatively small sample. Um, now you could buy high on these saying like his, Trajectory is definitely going up. If he can do it in the postseason, why can't he do it when he's facing, let's say, the Orioles and uh, other, you know, lower-ranked teams? The Red Sox don't have much pitching, uh, at least as of right now, going into 2021. It'll be easier to beat up on them than it was to beat up on the the Astros, the Dodgers, the Blue Jays, and I think the Yankees he went up against. Um, so it, it'll be easier to do that. We'll have to see how it's going to play out. This is just more resetting those expectations. And that's what I like about this is because sometimes we get the hype machine going and saying, you know, so-and-so is a great prospect. If they went into the majors right now, they would be one of the best hitters in baseball. That's very, 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 very rarely the case. Um, so even with somebody like Arizona, yes, what he's done in the majors so far has been fantastic. Um, but just reset those expectations as in all things, the answer is usually probably somewhere in the middle. He's definitely not the number 21 prospect anymore in the race system, but he's definitely not a top 20 overall player in baseball just yet. Um, so something to keep an eye out for on that. There are other rookies like Key Brian Hayes and Nick Madrigal, who I'm sure we'll talk about in upcoming versions of this story, uh, who have much higher war projections than, than Arizona did. So just something to keep in mind going into 2021. Um, moving along, another uh, element of the offseason calendar that is underway right now, the Major League International Signing Period, which was pushed back by over six months. Ordinarily, the International Signing Period starts on July 2nd, obviously, with, you know, gestures broadly at the world. Uh, that was pushed back to January 15th. So that is now underway and uh, a lot of talent on the international market that gets scooped up every year. Yeah, this is, this is kind of interesting because normally the July 2nd signing deadline or not signing deadline, but signing period opening happens right in the middle of our minor league season. It's a little tougher to get wrapped up in it given where, where it happens. And these guys are usually so far away. Um, they're 16 or older, basically uh, coming from the international market. Uh, but now here it is right in the middle of January, January 15th, coming up on Friday. Uh, and we expect that to happen for at least one other year. COVID-19 affected the signing period this year. They pushed it back uh, from July 2nd to January 15th, as Tyler just said. Uh, we expect that for the 2022 signing period as well. We think that'll start in January 15th. We'll see what happens after that, but for right now, things have shifted. Um, that being said, uh, looking at the market right now, uh, you know, there's going to be some big names that are, that are going to go off the board because of the shifting of the market. We kind of already know where, where guys are going to sign. Usually that's a little bit of the case going into July 2nd, but because of the shifting uh, period, we, we know that even firmer. I think now, like Yoelki Suspedes, he's MLB.com's number one international prospect this year. He's expected to go to the Chicago White Sox. That was actually reported by Jesse Sanchez back in December that that was going to happen. He was eligible to sign a little bit earlier, decided to put it off because 
one of the things about the international signing period now is that there are hard caps uh, for signing bonuses. You, you can't trade money this year. That's something that MLB decided. Sometimes you would hear about, you know, a trade happened for international signing bonus money. That didn't happen this year. So everything's kind of hard capped by him signing after this date. It opens things back up for the White Sox. The White Sox are scheduled to get about $5.3 million in their signing pool. Uh, so he gets to take a little bit of that. Uh, one team to you might not hear much about this year is the Atlanta Braves. They have only $1.5 million in signing money. Uh, the teams that can be a little bit more aggressive are the Reds, Tigers, Marlins, Brewers, Twins, and Rays. That group of six has the largest signing bonus, which is $6.431 million. Um, so just something to keep an, an eye on on July 15th. It doesn't seem like there are going to be many guys who are going to immediately jump into the top 100. Uh, it's, it's not the highest ceiling class I've, I've ever seen. I'll, I'll say that if you're expecting Yoelki Suspedes to be uh, Yoannis Suspedes, I think you're going to be a little bit disappointed given where they were at the same time they were entering uh, affiliated ball here in the States. Uh, Yoelki's only five foot nine, comes in at 200 in five pounds. He has above average power potential, but not the quite same as Ioannis, but he is a little bit better of a runner. That's something that'll go into the White Sox system. Um, so White Sox getting him, I think that's going to probably be the headline uh, of Friday. And at a time when the White Sox are making moves, you know, right? Like they, they continue, they just signed Liam Hendricks uh, to add him to their bullpen as their closer. I think that's because they see what the window is. Nick Madrigal is about to graduate Garrett Crochet their first round pick last year has already reached the majors Michael Kopech still waiting word on his situation but he's seen the majors as well uh Andrew Vaughn's the only big name prospect that they have that hasn't reached that level and he probably will in 2021 so the the window is kind of closing here the farm system's probably going to get pretty thin quick but signing somebody like Suspedes certainly makes it better and maybe he too could be on the fast track uh to the south side so something to keep an eye on uh, I'm going to do a whole explainer of why things have changed, what they look like, and which farm systems could benefit. That'll be a tool shed coming up on Friday. And our final topic for our opening segment this week, uh, we discussed a whole bunch of trades last week, obviously with uh, the Lindor deal and Blake Snell and you Darvish and all those things. There is not a huge trade to talk about, but there is the potential for a huge trade, perhaps, as there are rumblings now that the Boston Red Sox are shopping Andrew Benintendi around. Um, Mookie Betts obviously having departed there prior to last season and then signing a contract for $900 billion to stay in Los Angeles through 2097, I think was the uh, the final parameter of that deal. Uh, Andrew Benintendi, what do you make of, of this conversation and what would the Red Sox be looking for in return? Yeah, so what it sounds like the Red Sox are looking for here is uh, young pitching, young controllable pitching. If you look at the Red Sox staff right now, it's, it's not great. It was actually the worst starting group, I think, by war in 2020. Yes, Chris Sale hopefully will come back. I, I think there was word this week that he should be starting to throw off a mound soon, uh, coming off Tommy John surgery. Eduardo Rodriguez missed all of the season in 2020 following a COVID-19 diagnosis and myocarditis, which was really scary for him. Uh, we don't know what type of pitcher he's going to be like when he comes back. They have Nathan Eovaldi, but they don't really have that really exciting young pitcher uh, to bring up Brian Mata is kind of there and uh, the reports coming off the alternate site were great for him. And Tanner Houck came up former guest on this show uh, and seemed like he had things figured out. I would really like him to get a long look at the rotation in the spring. Uh, but pitching is a big hole for the Red Sox right now. And 
they might be looking at the club right now and, and thinking like, well, who's somebody we could trade who could bring back a, a decent, you know, a, a decent return. Andrew Benintendi is still young and controllable. He's still relatively cheap. I think he's owed $5 million uh, for the upcoming season. Not that much whatsoever. Uh, so, you know, if they're looking at their assets and what they could trade and potentially bring back and, and be better for the long run, maybe Benintendi's it. The, my problem with this deal is Benintendi's definitely, his stock has never been lower. Uh, he dealt with injuries in, in 2020. And I think, um, you know, since the beginning of 2019, his OPS plus is something around like 95. So he's a below average hitter. Uh, he's come, a, his stock has come a long way from when he was considered the top prospect in the game. He, he's a good left fielder. He could potentially play center field in another team that didn't have Jackie Bradley Jr. Uh, but you know, if on the Red Sox, you could have traded him a couple of years ago and got a massive haul. Now it might just be a couple of young pieces. It sounds like they're also after an outfielder. Uh, we'll see how things look after that. But, you know, the Red Sox system, it, it, if they are in rebuild mode, their system needs to be bulked out a little bit more. They pulled off some trades at the deadline last year uh, to bulk up that system. I'm thinking about adding, you know, uh, Connor Siebold in the Philly trade, another guest on the show. Um, Jason Rosario from, from the uh, Padres, as well as uh, Hudson Potts from the Padres. So the system's a little bit bigger. Another trade is going to make it even deeper of a system. Is it going to make it a top 15 system? I think it's not there yet, uh, but I'll be really interested to see what this looks like. Is it a young controllable pitcher who is a prospect or is it somebody who's already graduated who doesn't affect us so much on the minor league side, uh, but would help the Red Sox in a big area of need on the mound. So we'll see. It seems like there's a lot of momentum based on reports uh, that something could happen by the weekend. Maybe it's all smoke. Maybe nothing comes of it. But, uh, yeah, keep your eye on that one. And that's our opening segment. Sam, over the weekend, got a chance to knock out the interview for this week. Tell us about what's coming up. Yeah, so this this one was a lot of fun. It was actually longer than I was expecting just because Will Crow gave a lot of thoughtful answers, and there's a lot to go into with him, uh, Tyler mentioned the trade. He went from the Washington Nationals to the Pittsburgh Pirates and the deal that sent Josh Bell the other way. Uh, Will Crow got to make his major league debut in 2020. We get into what, what that was like and how weird it was to pitch in front of no fans, but also have the adrenaline of it being your first major league start. Uh, his, I think he made three starts. Those outings didn't quite go according to plan. So we talk about putting that in the past or how he's able to compartmentalize that. And also the early discussions of, of what, you know, what he's talked to the pirates about what they've noticed in the, his game, how they're hoping to improve him and take him to the next level and allow him to be a, a starting pitcher in part of a rebuild that's coming to Pittsburgh. Uh, and also I'll tease this. So you stay through the end of the interview. We also get into a very slight connection with uh, the American goddess Dolly Parton. Uh, so be sure to stay tuned throughout the full interview. Uh, here it is, me talking to Will Crow. Well, we're very pleased this week uh, to be joined on the show before the show, the Minor League Baseball Podcast, by number 17 Pirates prospect, one of the newest prospects in a pirate system that is growing and rebuilding and, and trying to grow at the farm system level. Uh, Will Crow is joining us on the line. Will, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, no, we're really, really glad to have you. Um, 
I, I guess I'll I'll say Happy New Year. We're talking here on January tenth, but it is you know ten days into the new year. Uh, but just at the end tail end of twenty twenty, some big news happened to you. Actually, according to the official transaction log, the trade went down on Christmas Eve on December twenty fourth. But you were traded from the Washington Nationals to the Pittsburgh Pirates in a deal that sent first baseman Josh Bell the other way. Um, just take us through what it was like going through that, especially this offseason when so much is up in the air, so much is trying to get uh, solidified and figured out for 2021, and all of a sudden you're changing organizations. What was it like to go through that process for you a couple weeks ago? Yeah, it was It was just like a, a whirlwind. Um, you know, we weren't expecting it. or I mean, we knew there was a possibility, but um, we weren't like, informed or anyone said anything about it happening or you know we weren't given a heads up or anything it was just kind of you know i got a phone call around one o'clock and one thirty, and um they said you know it's a business call and happy or merry christmas but uh, we're making a trade and you know then it's kind of a it's kind of been like talking to everybody from all my family to my my, my agents to then you know all the people with the pirates and then you, you just, it's just it's it was kind of non-stop there for a couple of days where it was you know you're just everyone's asking how it happened you know what with from family to friends and then you, you the the pirates reach out after after um after christmas and and really you know dive into kind of what they're doing and and the way the way they're moving and um you know you get a feel for everything and they 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 kind of get you accustomed to them and they let you know that like they're there for them everything whatever we need and 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 that they're ready to get to work so it's it's exciting um it was like i said it was not suspected but it's it's exciting and i'm excited about it and my family's excited about it and um we're ready to ready to get to work yeah and you talk about those first discussions with the pirates who who first reached out to you and how much research were you doing on your own before that to kind of see where things were in this organization? Because you've been with the Nats since draft day, since they took you coming out of South Carolina. Um, so having to switch organizations entirely, it's the off season. You have a little bit more time to do that. It's not like you have to switch locker rooms quite yet, but um, you know, when you're talking about those discussions with the pirates, what were you talking to them about and, and what questions did you have for this new organization? Yeah, um, the Pirates GM, uh, he he reached out to me. Ben Charrington reached out as soon as it happened. Um, he uh, once I once the Nats kind of informed me, and then it was kind of made official. He he gave me a call and just kind of welcomed me. He said, uh, "I know it's holiday, but uh, I just wanted to say hello." And you know, he reached out. Well, then that was I think a Thursday was the day I got traded. Um, he told me everybody would reach out in the coming week, you know? And, um, so on Monday, uh, Derek Shelton reached out, uh, manager and he said, um, just, he was excited about the opportunity to meet me and, uh, excited that I was going to be a part of the organization and part of, part of the team and that, uh, he's ready to get to work. And, you know, he's, uh, just wanted to reach out and say hello. Um, just kind of, you know, get on the phone and, and be able to say hello to me for the first time. And then, um, and then not, I mean, 30 minutes later, Oscar, Oscar Marin, the pitching coach, reached out and 
uh, kind of just introduced himself and said that he's ready to, uh, you know, dive into some other things. And, and then it kind of worked its way from, from those two to, uh, more of like the travel, the travel side. And, um, then our, our strength coach reached out, you know, it worked its way through, through basically all, all levels, um, all the way down to the nutritionist and, uh, you know, it's just, it's very interesting. You know, they, um, we've already talked quite a bit, um, workout regimens, you know, different types, different ways that, that we're going to, that we're going to train for this, you know, next month. Um, the, uh, Oscar, we've been on the phone a couple of times and, you know, they, they do a lot of stuff with video and, and they try and read what, what your fingers are doing off the ball and things. So, um, they're actually sending me some stuff to, uh, so we can get some, some video and some readings with Rep Soto and things that are kind of more on the analytical side. So I can, I can learn more about, about, you know, what my arm is doing and my fingers are doing or what maybe I, we can tweak to do this or do that. And it, it's, it's, it's a good and refreshing thing, you know, with the Nats, we use some of the, the Rep Soto in our bullpens and, you know, we had all the, the data and stuff that um, it was, it was kind of, it was just there. It wasn't, like I ever, you know, would sit down and someone would say, well, this is what your, your hand's doing, or this is what this is doing. You know, it was, it was available, but it was kind of, to me, I felt like that it was just kind of, we, we did our own thing with it. And, um, I, I would say I've, I've been kind of old school up till now, just, you know, go after people and do what, what I think is, you know, is, is what I do best. And, uh, now it's, we're going to really dive into it. You know, if, if, the vertical break and the horizontal break need to be up and down or change a little bit. You know, what does the, what does the exotronics cameras tell me that I could do differently with my, you know, release point or am I supinating or not? Um, you know, so it's, it's very interesting because they're, they're, they're bringing up these things that I've never really been, you know, no one's ever really said anything to me about. So being able to get this video and this data to them, and then they're going to come back with it to me and call me and give me some ideas and things so we can get to work, you know, immediately. So I'm excited about that. And, um, like the nutrition side of things, we're already getting some different supplements that, that, uh, they think will help with, you know, the recovery time and things, which, you know, I, I, I've never really been given these things or told these things, you know, so it's, they have a different mind, a different outlook on it. And, uh, I'm super excited because, you know, it's, it's, it's a new place. It's, it's, they're investing in me and, um, I'm excited to get to work and, and get these things going so we can, I can learn about this stuff and, and keep, you know, bettering myself as a player. Hmm. And I'm sure there are a lot of Bucks fans out there who I, I remember uh, a couple of years ago, I talked to Shane Boz, who's now in the Tampa Bay race system. He went from the pirates to the Rays, and he said it, it was almost the opposite of what you're going through now, but he left the pirate system at that point. This is a few years ago and they weren't really using that analytics yet. And he went to the Rays, and his eyes were opened. Now it seems like you're going to the pirates as a whole new regime under Ben Sherrington, things change over time, but diving into the Atlantic analytics side in, in that way should be exciting. I think for, for pirates fans, but when you talk about going from the Nat system, which was, you know, here's the information, do with it, what you will to the pirates, saying like, hey, this is how we're going to work with you based on this data. Do you feel like you'll be able to plug yourself in that way? You described yourself as kind of being old school. Do you feel like that's going to be part of a process? It's going to take you a while? Or do you feel like you can hit the ground running in that aspect, taking in that data? 
No, I think I, I, I'm very eager, you know, to learn this stuff. Um, even with the match, you know, I would, I would try and dive in as much as I could with some of my teammates and, and, uh, try and, you know, what does this mean and this mean? And, and, and I, I was very eager to learn and know what, what it said. And, um, so I'm, I'm actually thinking this is going to be really good for me. You know, I, uh, According to the data, I do some stuff really good and I, or really well, and I do some stuff just good, you know. And um, I just, there, according to that, let's we're gonna keep going with what I do great on, and then we're gonna try and maybe make a little tweaks and, you know, what the data is telling me, you know, just 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 make those tweaks and see how it works and what what happens here, what happens there, you know. Um, I want to take the the data and and run with it because it can it can make me better. And um, that's the end goal is to be the best player I can be. So um, I'm excited to get to work with it. I'm excited that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be told things and, and given examples and given opportunities with these, these new methods and these analytics to where I can become a better player. And it's, it's not like I'm just being told one thing with nothing behind it. You know, it's there. They're going to ask me or say something is going to be good for me or something could help me they're going to explain why it's not just like I'm told to do X, Y, and Z with no background to it or nothing behind it, you know? So I'm excited because they're investing in it. They're investing in me. They're investing in the players and they're wanting us all to be the best we can be. And that's awesome because not that the Nats didn't do that or other teams don't do that, but they're going to really heart or show, show us as players what the data is saying. And they're going to say, well, maybe if you do this and maybe if you do that or, you know, they're really going to dive deep into it, which is exciting because that gives us a chance to not just go into it blindly. Hmm. Yeah, and kind of along that same vein, whether it's with these early discussions with the Bucks or from the time from the Nets, like you said, when you were still pouring over this stuff and, and talking to teammates about it, is there any part of your game that you feel, especially on the good side, you said there's some stuff you do very well according to the analytics, so... In that aspect, is there something that you do much better than you would have expected just going off feel or the way things were working? Maybe the break of a certain pitch or the um, vertical rise of a certain pitch. Like, is there something that's even caught you off guard based on what the numbers have said in a positive way? I mean, yeah. Like, the the four seam is – it has better – like, more vertical rise than I thought. Um been told I have a heavy fastball in the, in, in the past by, you know, teammates pitching against them and stuff. But even with that, the four seam, is, it's got good vertical rise. And and um, the the slider and the curveball, you know, they're they're in the above average, you know, spin percentage. And I, I, I kind of knew that, but, like, it, I, I figured that. But, you know, it's even even the data showing that. So, um it's 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 interesting because they haven't really seen me other than what you know when I play against them or have showed in the big leagues. So for them being able to you know go through my data and see what I've got so far and be able to already know off the top like this is what we're we're going to work on. This is what we think we can do a little better, and this is what you do good, and we want to keep going with it. Like it just shows that there are good things there that we can make great. And then the good, th the things that are already above average, we just keep going with them. And then we have the opportunity to be, a, to be even better. And changing tracks just a little bit. One thing that stood out to me about you, what you said a couple of minutes ago in terms of the chain of command and the way 
the Pittsburgh organization reached out to you, Ben Charrington being first there, then Derek Shelton, then the pitching coach going all the way down to the nutritionist. But the fact that it was, you know, through the GM of the entire organization, the manager of the major league team, the pitching coach of the major league team, you have three major league starts, but as we mentioned in the open, you still have prospect eligibility, still have rookie eligibility. Um, you know, some other organizations for those types, they might have the farm director reach out to you first when it is the major league manager and the major league pitching coach trying to work with you first here and reaching out and, and taking that upon themselves. You know, how, what does that mean for you just to know that they already see you as a piece of the major league team? Yeah, it means, it means a lot. You know, they, uh, there's, there's a lot of opportunity for me this year. Um, and we've spoken about that with, you know, with them and they're excited to get to work and, and get going. And I know that, you know, if I go in and I do my job and I compete at the level that I know I can, that I'm going to be able to throw, throw quality big league innings for them this year. And, um, I, I can do it from day one, as soon as the season starts. Um, so, you know, I kind of control what, whatever, what I can control is what's going to, what's going to determine this if I'm with the team, you know, in the big leagues at the beginning of the year. So, I mean, they're, they're already showing me that they want me to be there and they believe in it and they're ready to get to work. And uh, that, that's just, that's just exciting for me because, you know, now it's in my hands, you know, it's not, you know, not the, the uh, business side of the game, you know, it's, it's more of, Hey, you go do your work and you do what you're supposed to. You're going to have an opportunity. And that's, that's very exciting for me. Yeah. That kind of gets to something I also wanted to bring up is you're going from more an organization that, at this point is still only a year removed from winning a world world series title to one that going into next year has the number one overall draft pick and is clearly rebuilding. Um, that does mean more opportunities for young players like yourself, but um, you know, what is it going to be like to, for you? Do you think to switch organizations like that in terms of the competition level at, at the top level or the opportunities for young, young players like yourself? You know, I, I don't think it changes anything. You know, the Nats have a have a great big league team and um they're they're you know, they're win now and you know, that's just kinda what their motto was, you know, it's always about, you know, winning and, and, and I love that. But even with the Pirates, you know, with the talk that I had with Derek and, and Oscar and, you know, Ben, they're it, we're 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 trying to win games, you know, and, and we're trying to compete. And, you know, it's not like we're just folding in a towel, you know, and they're just giving, you know, young guys opportunity to come in and, you know, just play in the big leagues. You know, they're, we're, we're going to, we're excited, you know, we're going out here to win games and, and no, we're never going to go out there to lose. And, uh, you know, me and Oscar had a good talk. He, he was saying like, Hey, it's not, it's not, we're not just wanting to throw you out there to get you innings and like, get your feet wet and keep going big leagues, you know, we're, we want to win games and, uh, you know, they're, they're never going to play to lose and, and yeah, they might be going through a little rebuild, but you know, we're going out there to compete every day and win. So, um, you know, it's, I don't think it changes the mindset, you know, I, I can't, I don't think you can tell a professional baseball player to go lose a baseball game, you know, and, you know, comparing, comparing, you can't, that's just not in our, our DNA. It's not in our blood. So like we're gonna go out there and we're gonna play every day and to win the game, whether we're rebuilding or not, you know. So I'm excited. You know, we got a bunch of young talent, a bunch of young guys in in I guess major league age wise. We're we're younger younger team, but you know it's a bunch of really good players. And uh, I've I've 
looked at the team, you know, I, I know only a couple guys, but there's, 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 some, there's something to be excited about. You know, we got, we got some good players and it's, it's going to be fun to go out there and play. Yeah, for sure. And uh, speaking of going out in there and playing, uh, you're one of the few people we get to have on this show who has already made his major league debut. Um, that came, you know, in uh, 2020, which meant, you know, no fans in the stands. You got to debut at Nats Park against the Miami Marlins on August 22nd, uh, three and two thirds innings in that one uh, for you. But just take me back through that. Uh, normally a, a major league debut that there's jitters about playing in front of fans. You didn't get that opportunity, obviously, but it's still major league debut. The first time you ever got out on a mound like that. Um, just take us through that whole start, your thoughts going into it and what you took away from having that out of the way, officially being a major leaguer. You know, it's, it's, it's something you work your whole life for, you know, from knee surgery in eighth grade and 10th grade and 11th grade and elbow surgery in college, you know, it's, it's, it's something I've been working for ever since I was a kid. And um, people told me I couldn't do it and wasn't going to make it, couldn't play baseball in college. And, and, you know, you, it's something I'll, I'll cherish for the rest of my life, you know, being a big leaguer is is a uh, it's something that not many people get to do, and uh, it's it was an awesome day. You know, there were no fans, but you know it was it was still me versus them, and the mat like you know I was still competing, and um, it was a day like I said I won't forget it. You know, my wife was in the left field, and that's part of there's a there's a hotel with a rooftop bar. So she was sitting up there. So technically she was there. She could see from the rooftop bar. All she could see was the pitchers mounted home plate. So she got to watch me. So, um, it was, there was somebody there, you know, cheering me on, even if it was from, you know, thousand feet away or whatnot. But, uh, she, um, it, it was, it was fun. It was a good thing. It was a little bit of jitters, you know, you're going to have those butterflies, but, uh, they went away after that first pitch and uh, then it was just about competing and, and that's something I, I love to do. So uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I've been to Nats park. I know that hotel you're talking about, were you able to like see her like when you were done warming up, could you like look up and see just a small dot of her or just the idea that she was up there? Was that helpful? Yeah. It's just, just kind of the idea you, if you look up there, you, you kind of just see the lights. You can't really, you can, you can kind of see people up there, and but you can't really tell if it's it, who it is, you know, from from the from the field. But um, she was up there watching the game, and and uh, it just having her knowing that she was there, and uh, it it was able, it was comforting, you know. Yeah, no, I'm I'm sure I'm I'm glad you guys could make the most of that and have somebody there in, in that way uh, in this kind of unique 2020 season. Um, speaking of which, you know, you you made three starts. Uh, the numbers weren't necessarily great. Again, those are only three starts, small sample sizes, all that, all the asterisks that come with it. Um, but an 11-8-8 ERA, eight strikeouts, and eight and a third innings. Um, so much of what we have to do this year is kind of put 2020 in its own box. But especially for you, uh, going through those three starts, making your debut, which is important, maybe not necessarily going the way you would have liked or planned. But how are you able to compartmentalize 2020 and – you know, kind of keep it in its own place, knowing it was a unique situation and, and now trying to move forward with your major league career and improving those numbers going forward. Yeah, I mean, everything, like you said, about 2020 was weird. Um, and uh, 
for me, uh, it was, it was, it was different. The whole thing was different, you know, um, pitching double headers every time and, and things. And, uh, I just didn't feel like me, you know, I was trying to do too much and, you know, I was worrying about things I shouldn't worry about. And, um, you know, for me, I, I go out and I compete, I go after guys, you know, and I give it, I, I'm going to, I'm going to give you what I got. And, uh, you know, looking back at, at what happened and what what transpired in those starts, I wasn't doing that. You know, I was trying to be fine. I was trying to be too perfect, um, and I wasn't. I wasn't competing. You know, I was. I was trying to be somebody I wasn't, and um, that's that's where that's where I went wrong, and that's why the numbers show what they show. Um, so you know, I can leave it behind. It, it was good to get my feet wet. It was good to. Uh, to, you know, make that debut and get all that under my belt. And now it's just, you know, be me. You know, what what got me to the big leagues was by me being me. And that's competing and, and being a bulldog and going strike one and, and you know, doing everything I can to help the team win. And um, in those starts, I wasn't doing that. I was trying to, like I said, I was trying to do too much. So uh, being able to just kind of get that behind me, put it on the back burner and uh, let it fuel the fire to, to the off season and how I'm going to work is – what I did, and you know, we you live and you learn, you move forward, and uh, I'm looking forward to 2021 and getting back out there and uh, proving myself and showing people what what I'm made of and who I am as a ball player. Yeah, yeah, and when you say looking back and, and realizing uh, you weren't quite yourself, uh, one thing that stood out to me just looking at your pitch di- distribution from the major league time again, only three starts, pretty limited sample, but you were throwing 60% fastballs, 29% sliders. 9% change-ups and only 2% curve. So it seemed like you were going pretty heavy on the fastball and slider. Um, you know, what went into that decision to, to go heavy on those two pitches? And what, if anything, would you have done differently, at least in terms of pitch selection against Major League Bats last year? Yeah, um, I think what goes into that is, you know, from scouting reports to feel to, you know, just just – I mean, it all works works in together. Um, you know, I, I feel like my changeup and my curveball are—I I feel like they're just as good pitches as as the, as the slider is. Um, and you know, I I felt like I like when I say I had I felt like I was doing too much is, you know, I'm trying to spin that that slider that's nasty and and then I get into a bad count and I'm having to throw the fastball and and I'm I'm missing the zone, you know, and I'm not. It's just not. It's not me. It's not who I am. Um, so. You know, I, I go out there and I, 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 it's a chess game. It's it's me versus the hitter. I'm I'm doing this, this, and this, and and I never I never got myself into that. Uh, you know, so being able to throw, you know, just to, to throw the other pitches more, or or you know, use use the curveball more than the slider, you know, vice versa, whatever it may be. It's just the the game plan and and you know, kind of how the games went kind of dictated that, you know, because. I get I put myself in a lot of bad positions. So when you when you when you warm up and you throw a couple of curveballs and you throw one in the game that's not great and the slider was, you know, that's what's get that's what's getting caught. And um, you know, the I think the the outcomes of those innings dictated what I was throwing and, and it put me in a bad spot and it wasn't who I was and it's not who I am. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out to anybody listening at home and especially Pirates fans who are going to get to know you pretty well here in the, the coming months that one of the reasons why you are a top pitching prospect is your four-pitch mix and the way, way you've been able to throw it, 
uh, across the minor leagues. Um, so especially with that curveball, um, you know, where, where do you feel like the development of that is to the point where you can throw it more often? Um, you know, was there anything you've seen in the data that you can improve upon with it? Like where, what is the status of that pitch? Do you think going into 2021? Yeah, I think it, I mean, the data tells me it's, it's an above average, uh, pitch with the spin, you know, I'm able to spin the curveball really well and it comes out of hand. Right. Um, and when I, when I stay kind of in slot and I don't try and make it do more than I have to, um, it, it, it's a great pitch. You know, we're, uh, with the pirates talking with them over the weekend, um, and Oscar, we're, we're going to see if we can, you know, do a couple things with it and, and make it even better. Um, you know, maybe the grip, maybe the way the hand it's coming out of the hand. And, uh, instead of trying to over, you know, do stuff with the, with, you know, the, the, I'm not, let's see, I say this, the, the extension, like the release point, instead of trying to do too much with the release point of it, you know, just let the arm work and maybe do some more stuff with the fingers. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's a good pitch for me. And, you know, in college, it was probably my second best pitch. Um, you know, that was what I went to. And, you know, maybe over the last couple of years, I, I feel like it's it's there and it's a great pitch for me. Maybe the usage maybe go up more or, you know, it's based off the game plan. And uh, that's where I'm ready to dive into the data and see what it says because maybe I'm not throwing the right pitch in the right count off of what it says I should or what I've done before. So with the four seam having a high vertical, you know, efficiency and, um, and, those, and it being a good pitch, you know, you can run that, you can throw that curveball off of, off that four seam. And I haven't been doing that as much as I think I, I should have been. So I'm excited about, you know, working through these next, you know, six weeks and then getting in the camp and really diving in and, and learning more about the pitch itself and how I can use it in better situations for, for myself. Yeah. When we're talking about learning about where your pitches are, where they can go next in terms of like, where are you right now in your build up for spring training? Because we thought weirdness was behind us in 2020. It obviously isn't. There are rumors going around that, you know, spring training could start on time and, it could be delayed. Nobody knows quite for sure quite yet. So in your progression, your pitching progression, like where are you right now and where are you aiming to be in about a month in theoretically when spring training's about to open down there in Bradenton? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm, I'm planning on being ready to go, you know, full, full go at February, you know, 15th. Um, that's what we're being told. That's what we know so far. And, uh, you know, that's what I'm preparing for. Um, I'm, I threw a bullpen this week on Wednesday and bullpen number two is tomorrow and, you know, two pins a week start this week. So, uh, you know, the first couple, first couple for me are, are just fastballs only. And then he, uh, I spend some flat ground stuff prior to, but, um, you know, I'm full go, you know, normal throwing program, throwing routine. Uh, I've been throwing for like six weeks now and, um, I, uh, I'm, I'm preparing to, to be ready, you know, February 15th when I get to or February 10th or whenever me and my wife head down, you know, I'm going to be ready to go. And, um, I'm going to, I'm in a lucky situation here, 
in Charleston where the head coach at College of Charleston was my head coach in South Carolina. And he, uh, early February, he lets me come out and throw throw against his guys and get some live, live action in before I do go to camp. So in a couple of weeks, I'll throw a live outing or two against them, and then I'll head to Bradenton and, and be ready to go uh, start day one of spring training to, to, to hit the ground running. Very cool. All right. Well, well, we've, we've taken up a lot of time with you so far. I, I just want to end on a couple uh, more fun questions than some of the stuff we've, we've touched on so, so far. Um, but in doing research for this interview, one thing that stood out to me was I want to jump back eight years now, which is crazy to think about, but to 2013, when you helped win a Tennessee state title for Pigeon Forge in 2013, you threw 157 pitches to help them win the state title. What do you remember about that game? And could you ever do that again? Like 157 pitches is insane for anybody, obviously. But to do it as a teenager with a state title on the line, that's like next level. Uh, what do you remember from that game? What did you take away from that going into South Carolina, going into the Nats and now the Pirates? You know, uh, that was um, probably one of the best days of my life. Uh, you know, I it, look back at it. I really didn't know at the time. Um that I'd thrown 157 pitches. Uh, I really, I had no idea. My arm, body, you know, I was tired, but it was normal, you know. And uh, I remember my coach came up to me, and I think like the the sixth inning or what it may have been, we went to extras, but um, he asked me, and he was like, uh, I'm going to warm, I think he said he was going to warm up a kid named Thomas, uh, a younger kid on our team. And I told him, I said, no, I'm not coming out of this game. Uh, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing this game. And, you know, that, that group of guys we had in high school is something some, – some of the guys I'll never forget, some of my best friends. You know, we had, we had a really good team. We had Ben Brazil, who played at Wake Forest. We had Drake Bird, who played at Belmont in Nashville. We had, you know, Colt Buchanan, who played at a D2 in Tennessee. We had a bunch of really good players on that team. And, um, you know, what I'll never forget is, is those guys. And, you know, we were, we were down, you know, two to nothing going into the, the bottom of the sixth. And, you know, we have two outs and we score two runs and go into extra innings. And, you know, we, we, we went – or the top of the sixth, I'm sorry. And then I get, I get them out in the sixth. The bottom of the sixth, we come back in, score two runs. And, you know, we go out and close it, close it out. And just the work those guys that, that we put in, you know, we, we stress from, from August all the way – you know, in we had a we had a trainer, and we were doing six a.m.s three times a week on in the in the fall, and we were doing you know we were doing two a days three times a week, and going and getting in the swimming pool on Wednesdays. You know, it's crazy to think that, but we had you know fifteen, eighteen guys on that team that were all invested in winning the state championship, and um, you know it's funny we we had one of my best friends, Caleb Black. He uh, he played football, and I told him he. He was always saying that he wanted to play baseball, but you know he wasn't he wasn't the greatest baseball player. But I said, hey, come out, you know we're we're, we're going to win you a ring, and that was before the season started. And uh, we had one goal in mind, and, and that was it was a it was a championship or, or nothing. We didn't care, and uh, you know we had a we had a mentality and the attitude, and just those those guys are people I'll never forget, and they're some of my best friends, and we had such a great relationship. I uh, I'll never forget those guys. Hmm. Have you ever had a prediction as good as, hey, come out to the team and we'll win you a ring? <laughs> no, that's probably my best one. You know, uh, 
it was a couple guys I told that to, you know, a uh, couple, couple guys that were like, our football coach's son actually played, uh, played in JUCO and now he's the coach, the football coach there. And he, his dad lived there and he, his mom lived in Nashville. And I told him, I texted or sent him a message before the year. And I said, Hey man, you should move to Pigeon Forge. You can come win a state championship with us. I told him the same thing. And, uh, you know, we were confident. We had a great team. We had a good group of guys and, and we knew that, that we, we could do it as long as we really believed in ourselves. Um, it, it came to pass. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad that that worked out for literally everybody involved. It sounds like, uh, for anybody, <laughs> uh, one other one I, I want to touch on real quick while, while we're talking about your hometown. Uh, but if anybody out at home was listening to that and, and heard pigeon forge and said, why do I know that? Why does that sound familiar? Pigeon forge is home to Dollywood, um, which is amazing. And I never get to ask anybody about Dollywood. So what is your review of like, do you guys go all the time? Do you ignore it? Cause it's like the big thing in town. Like what was it like growing up in that town? And what can you tell us about the park itself? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> Dollywood's fun. Um, you know, they have a bunch of good roller coasters, you know, the Soaring Eagle and uh, Tennessee Tornado. There's, there's, a, there's a few there, you know, that are a lot of fun. And um, growing up when I was a kid, you know, that's amusement park, you know, you go, go get the cotton candy, you go walk around, you go get on the water ride, you know, it's awesome. Uh, and now in college or in high school, I live in the backyard of, of Dollywood. Um, I, I, I was one turn away from the front gate. So uh, we don't go as much in, in, in high school, you know, since we're there. But, um, you know, it's a lot of fun. More people go to Splash Dollywood Splash Country I think in the summer, if you live there, then they do the, the regular part. But, um, you know, they do Winterfest and all those things. Yeah, Dollywood's a great time. It's a great amusement park. Uh, uh, my mom and my mom and some of her friends when I was growing up, they had, we always had our season passes. and It's just a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a good place to go to, and it's, it's a good getaway for a day to go and enjoy yourself and have a good time. Yeah, I mean, we were joking off air before we started this of the amount of things that I want to do once we can all kind of break quarantine and it's safe to travel everywhere. And Dollywood is squarely on the list, especially after Dolly Parton's in uh, her, her involvement in one of the vaccines. Like uh, that, so that's good to know that it's uh, it's lived up to its legend, anyways. All right, well, we'll, we'll end on this one. Um, we talked before about making your start. Uh, your your major league debut in front of no fans except for your wife in, in a hotel high above Nats Park. But, um, you know, potentially if all goes well with that vaccine, if everything goes well this year, knock on wood, uh, you could potentially, you know, pitch another major league start this time in front of fans. Is that going to feel different to you? What are you looking more most forward to about that experience? And, um, yeah, just what, what do you think that's going to be like are you going to consider it almost a second major league debut, I guess, since fans will actually be there that time? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be different uh, than, than the first one. Um, just, you know, my, my family um, from my mom, my dad, to, to my friends, parents, to, you know, my coaches, to my wife and, you know, from, from when I was a little kid all the way till now, you know, everyone's given up so much and and helped me so much to to get to be a big leaguer and um you know I'm living out I'm living out other people's dreams 
uh, get to play in the big leagues and I get to play a sport for a living and, and, um, you know, being able to have people there who, who can enjoy it too. You know, they, um, so many people have done so much for me and given up so much for me and, um, for me to be able to live out my dream and, uh, for them to be able to be there and in person and watch me compete and watch me do, do my thing. That's what I'm excited about because, like I said, they, there's so many, so much more that other people have given up, you know, time, you know, helping me become a better player, a better person, a better human. And, you know, while I'm following my dream, um, I, I'm glad that I'll be able to have friends and family and my wife and her family and everyone there just to enjoy it just as much as I would. So that's what I'm looking forward to is having my friends and my family and, uh, in the stands and being able to watch me play and because I know, I know all them, they, they, they sent me all the texts and all the love and did everything they could while I was, you know, kind of in baseball's little bubble. But um, I'm glad that that's what I'm looking forward to is that they'll get to come and watch and really enjoy it first time. Yeah. And I, I think that's a great sentiment and that a major league debut. M- many people have said this before, but it's, it's not just for you. It's for everybody who's helped you along the way from, Pigeon Forge to South Carolina to the Nats system now to the pirate system. Well, Will Crow, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join us in what I'm sure has been a, a hectic and a little bit of a crazy off season, but um, thanks so much for doing this. All the best down there in, in Charleston and, and good luck for you know, the preparation for the season and spring training, whenever it may be down there in, uh, in Florida. Uh, I'm sure we'll catch you down the line. Thanks for doing this. Yes. Thank you. I've had a great time and I appreciate it. Catching up with our good buddy and future father, Benjamin Hill. Hi, Ben. Oh, my new, uh, my do that, my new designation, future father. I like it. We're just throwing uh, it out there every week. Yeah, I like it. And you know, it's not going to last too long. I'm going to go from FF just to F. Yeah. Which soon enough. You know, good luck. I don't think that can be an acronym anymore. <laughs> I can't. I don't think you can just be the F. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I guess think, not. I don't think that one will work too well. Um, but we got a lot to discuss with Ben today, including uh, a story that is up on the site, a story that is coming to the site. And we are going to start off with one that was uh, a really heartfelt piece that went up at MILB.com uh, as of Tuesday, January 12th. If you've ever been to a minor league game, if you've ever worked for a minor league team, if you've ever had any real interaction with a, a minor league staff, you know that kind of the backbone of what goes on in a minor league ballpark from night to night, especially during the season, uh, is the cadre of game day employees who take part in really making the whole machine operate. Uh, Ben took a look at four game day employees who are no longer with us, who uh, passed away from uh, organizations across the country. This is a really cool story, and it's it sheds some really great light on people who quite literally without minor league or without them, minor league baseball would not be able to function the way it does. Yeah. Game day employees. I mean, a game can't happen without the game day employees. And, um, you know, throughout uh, 2020 and the season that wasn't, you know, I'd see remembrances of game day employees who passed away on Twitter. And I started making a note of it at some point and I didn't really know what exactly I wanted to do. But uh, last week I was thinking like, how about I reach, you know, compile my list, uh, see what I have and reach out to some teams and see if I can include at least some of these people in a, in a story, because 
you know, as you guys know, and as I'm sure many of uh, the listeners to this podcast know, you know, being minor league baseball fans, uh, game day employees, um, you know, whatever, they're serving food, they're bringing, they're helping you to your seat, they're catering the suites, uh, they are, you know, in the parking lot directing you to a space, you know, they really make the game happen. And a lot of game day employees are, uh, you know, retired people uh, who often have retired, you know, from their full-time job, whatever that might be, but in order to maybe still make a little bit of money, but often just as importantly, uh, be social, be active, be outdoors, be around a game they love. Uh, They work at minor league ballparks uh, and are just to really have a sense of community. And they're often very social people and very friendly, uh, fun, you know, loving, kind people. And I just wanted to highlight that with this story. I'm sure other game day employees, uh, you know, passed away in 2020, and I'd be happy to do a follow-up on more, but uh, this story includes, you know, Harry Brook, who was 96 years old, um, World War II veteran, uh, uh, head usher for the Tulsa Drillers for a lot of years, a woman named Margaret Smith, Bowie Bay Sox, you know, kind of a jack-of-all-trades all all around the ballpark, you know, the photos of the team shared with me, you know, she's on a carousel in one picture at the ballpark, and another, she's dressed as Princess Leia, you know, real fun-loving spirit. Um, you know, was always dancing with kids at the ballpark and dancing just, you know, between innings all the time. John Bukovitz, the uh, Kane County Cougars, uh, sat at gate three, and uh, he was the man you interacted with if you went in gate three right by the will call window on the first base side. Uh, he died at the age of 89. And, uh, you know, one, I saw one person on Twitter suggest that they should name gate three after him. And I think, what do I know? But I think that'd be a great, a great tribute. And then a, a man named Dennis Brady in Frisco for the Frisco Rough Riders. Uh, beloved usher, just a deeply kind man. And there was an outpouring of uh, stories of just, you know, how he went out of his way to help kids, you know, give them balls, uh, keep them engaged at the game. And, uh, you know, just have a smile and a warm word for so many people. That seems cliche, but I think that's what a lot of these people are about, you know, just interacting with others in a warm, kind-hearted, generous way. And, uh, you know, I'm sure if you're listening to me talk right now, you're probably thinking of game day employees, you know, I mean, maybe you, uh, Sam and Tyler, and also everyone listening, because uh, if you go to games with any regularity, they're always there and uh, a lot of good people. Yeah, and, and uh, this story just kind of reminds me of every ballpark, you know, has these game day employees, that, like you, you mentioned, Ben, and all, all of them mean so much, but sometimes they get kind of overlooked. And, you know, when you go to a ballpark, um, you know, especially in 2021, when hopefully, you know, as we always do, knock on wood, uh, maybe in the back half of the summer, fans will be able to come back to games and feel normal again. Um, what's a way you would like, not just teams, but fans in general to, to appreciate these, in some ways, volunteers, sometimes they're, they're paid employees, but not paid very much, uh, who are basically the kings and queens of the ballpark in many ways. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just absence makes the heart grow fonder. I think a lot of people are deeply appreciated anyway, but after not seeing them for the course of the season and then just realizing, you know, how much you miss them and uh, and I'm sure how much they miss the ballpark. Uh, but I do think it's, uh, you know, when fans make it back, there's just going to be a lot of appreciation on all sides. And I would definitely, you know, say to people, you know, uh, make make sure to, to give these people a really uh, – a kind hello and a warm welcome and say how much you miss them. And I bet they missed you as well. And we also lost uh, another member of the baseball family, uh, another hall of famer who passed away in Tommy Lasorda last week. And um, Tommy Lasorda, a lengthy minor league career. He became obviously known as the face of the Los Angeles Dodgers organization and um, is probably the most iconic member of that Dodgers family um, over the last, you know, 
couple of generations at least. Um, for people who don't know, though, there was a lengthy minor league career prior to his time in the big leagues and as a, as a player and as a manager and all of that. And you've got a piece coming up on his minor league days. Tell us about that. Yeah, I'm working on that right now. Um, you know, Tommy Lasorda, of course, you know, ubiquitous character and someone that any baseball fan knows. You know, I'm, I appreciate him through the years and his colorful personality, but you know, I wouldn't call myself a big Tommy Lasorda fan. I was often mixed on the guy for various reasons, but there's just no doubt that he's a, just had an outsized impact in baseball. But the thing is, is his career was so long and so much of it was, uh, you know, associated with more Tommy Lasorda, you know, the grandfather, the white-haired, cantankerous guy who managed the Dodgers for 20 years and then was just kind of ubiquitous on TV and commercials and as a roving goodwill ambassador of sorts. Um, you know, I just started looking into his career and I was like, this guy pitched between 1945 and 1960 and almost entirely in the minor leagues. So I thought it'd be fun just to poke around. I like to do these kind of stories because they open endless windows or tangents or whatever you want to say, rabbit holes. Uh, you, you can just find so much by poking around into a long minor league career. So I just kind of using Tommy Lasorda's career as an excuse to poke around baseball history and illuminate uh, the kind of career he had. I mean, he had a, he debuted in 1945 at the age of 17 for a team in Concord, North Carolina. And uh, then he served in the Army for two years, came back in 1948 and played for Schenectady. And uh, those two years were both of the Phillies organizations. I think people totally forget that he wasn't always a Dodger. Uh, then meanwhile, he was the winningest pitcher of all time for the Montreal Royals, an international league team that are probably best known, uh, at least in America, for the fact that uh, Jackie Robinson played for them in 1946. But Tommy Lasorda played parts of like eight seasons for the Montreal Royals between the years 1950 and 1960. Uh, he played for the Los Angeles Angels in 1957, the, their last year as a PCL franchise before the Los Angeles Dodgers came in the next year. So I hadn't realized that Lasorda pitched in LA one year before the arrival of the Dodgers. So on and on and on. There's a lot to explore. I'm working on that story now, trying to make it relatively concise and succinct, but uh, just shine a little light on a playing career in the minor leagues that lasted, uh, yeah, between 1945 and 1960, at which point he was a fairly anonymous baseball person. And, you know, Tommy Lasorda was in the game a long, long time, and it's uh, easy to forget just how long. All right, Ben. Well, before we let you go here, just wanted to get your reaction quick because, um, you know, we've been documenting over the past couple of weeks – uh, whole leagues becoming new th things, whether it's, you know, the Pioneer League becoming an independent partner league or the Appalachian League going to a college wood bat uh, style. But we got news the other day that the Batavia Muck Dogs uh, are technically switching formats, but they're also switching leagues entirely. They'll be part of the Perfect Game Collegiate Baseball League next season. Uh, that league has produced first rounders and high picks in the past. It's not quite up to the level of the Cape League, but quickly, uh, what was your reaction and thoughts about, you know, the Muck Dogs moving to a collegiate league like that? Well, you know, big picture, I'm just happy to see any former minor league market introduce or announce a new baseball reality. Um, you know, I think if you've been following minor league baseball at all uh, for the last, you know, however many years, a decade, you knew that the Batavia Muck Dogs were often endangered because uh, they played a small ballpark and needed some work, small market. It was, you know, their attendance was low. Um, so they were a team that was rumored to be on the move for a long time and they always hung in there and I only visited Batavia once, but like a lot of places like that, I was very charmed because you know, there's a long history of community ownership. 
there were fans and volunteers who worked so hard on behalf of the team. You know, they weren't paid to do it, but there's a really tight night uh, baseball community there. Uh, I got to know in particular a guy named Russ Hallway. Uh, Howway. I'm sorry, Russ, if I said your name wrong a little bit. Um, and he was live streaming the press conference just yesterday uh, on Facebook. He was the man behind the camera, as it were. Uh, and I know he did a lot of work to, to kind of help smooth the road for this uh, new uh, collegiate league to play there. So I'm just really happy for, uh, you know, that core baseball community in Batavia who've kept it alive uh, against all odds, you know, over many years now, and now who will continue to support a team into the future. And uh, I really hope it succeeds for them and for everybody in baseball, you know, the more success, the better. And they're keeping the muck dogs name. Uh, I think it's a classic story of, you know, when that name was announced, what was it in 1996 or so, you know, a lot of outrage, consternation, what's a muck dog. But now all these years later, it's like, ah, we love the muck dogs. We got to keep the name. So new league, new format, still baseball, still the muck dogs in Batavia. And uh, I wish them all the success. Benjamin Hill, you can find on Twitter at Ben's Biz. The story's up at the site at MILB.com. And uh, thanks, man. We'll, uh, we'll do it again next week. Yeah, I'll still be an FF. <laughs> Wrapping up this week's episode of the show before the show. Before we do, Sam has our Nationwide Prospect Fact of the Week. Yeah, so this one is part of a series that we were putting on the site. There's going to be a bunch of different ones of this. I just want to tease one out real quick. It's called Modern Marvels. Uh, and basically what we're looking at is players who have the most of certain counting stats. So this one's going to be hits. We also have strikeouts up on the site. Uh, but they have to have played at least one season in the 21st century. Um, so these are all guys who you've kind of heard about uh, at least in the last two decades. Their numbers could count from before that. But if they played at least one year in the 21st century, they count towards this category. Uh, it's a great opportunity to remember some guys. If you've ever read old Deadspin or Defector Media, uh, I love that concept of just here's somebody you might not have thought about a long, for a long time, but they brought back good memories. This is a good opportunity to do that. So the minor league leader among players who played at least one season in the 21st century in the hits category is Jason Wood, an 11th round pick in the 1991 draft out of Oakland. Uh, he played at Fresno State, played for a couple of different teams in that system. Uh, one of my favorites, he played for Edmonton in the Pacific Coast League. Uh, but over his time in the minor leagues, which again started in 1991, ended in 2008, he amassed 1,840 hits. Not easy to do by any means for obvious reasons. Uh, but the fact that he stuck with it for that long, stuck it out in the minor leagues. In 2008, he played for uh, Albuquerque in the PCL, played 105 games for them, uh, picked up 93 hits that season. Uh, so obviously stuck it out for a while. And among guys who have played at least one season in the 21st century, he has the most hits. So Jason Wood, enjoy your moment in the spotlight in this way. And hopefully uh, this is considered this a celebration of your long and illustrious minor league career. Uh, more names out on this story. Again, it's called Modern Marvels. Uh, there are more names in this one. We've got hits. We've got strikeouts. We've got more coming to the site between this week and next week. So be sure to check that out. Jason Wood, also just a, an all-time great dude. He was the manager that I worked with in Myrtle Beach in 2011 and one of the nicest human beings I've ever met in my life. Also, uh, the pitching coach on that staff was Brad Holman, who Cade Cavalli mentioned uh, last week in our interview. And Brad, if there's anyone equally nice to Woody, it's Brad Holman. So um, it's good to see good people getting work in baseball and, uh, and Woody now in the San Francisco Giants organization, Brad Holman, obviously with the Washington Nationals. And um, it's always cool to follow those 
those careers. But yeah, pretty great stuff for for Jason Wood, who is the first, and I believe still. Uh, only former Albuquerque Isotopes player to have his number retired by that franchise. So very cool. He had that retired a couple of years ago when he was with AAA Round Rock. Uh, when they were a Rangers affiliate, he was the manager there. They went to Albuquerque for a, a trip and uh, and he got his number retired. Pretty cool stuff. So uh, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. Again, you can get in touch podcast at MILB.com. Sam's on Twitter at Sam Dykstra MILB. I am at Tyler Mon. and uh, take care of yourselves. Wear your mask. Keep your distance. Uh, be safe. We're so close. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.